Uh, It will also be on the screen behind me, but it's also good to look here, as our kids reminded us uh, just, just a few weeks ago in their musical. As we open here, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we open your word today, I pray that you would get me out of the way, that you would take down any of the things that we put up between ourselves and you and speak to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. The Apostle John was a fisherman with the soul of a poet. I remember clearly the first time that I realized this. It was during our morning devotional time at a camp I was working for in Tennessee. I was sitting in the vinyl driver's seat of Bob, a brown GMC cargo van with a three-speed manual transmission and no power steering. Some people connect with God in nature or cathedrals, but I'm a car guy, and God knows the best place to reach me. So I was sitting in Bob, Reading the first chapter of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
As I continued through that chapter, for the first time that I can remember, I fell in love with the beauty of this book. And I've come to appreciate John's inspired writing more and more ever since. Now, I mentioned John's poet soul because for poets, nothing is accidental. Words are chosen carefully for their nuance and sound and rhythm. I was an English literature major, and I love the way that Keats plays with meter in Ode on a Grecian Urn. I love the surprising conceits of John Donne. In fact, I I loved literature so much that at one point I even fell in love with one of my English teachers. Unfortunately, she had to go to jail, unrelated. (laughs) But I was determined that when she got out, I would ask her to marry me. Sadly, she told me that you can't end a sentence with a proposition. That was a joke, a very, very bad joke, but here in the passage we read today, a particular phrase jumped out at me. It's right there at the beginning of verse 26, eight days later. Some translations just say a week later, and that is the meaning of the original, but the Greek actually includes the number. And I believe that number is there because that's literally how long it was. In the way of counting back then, it was one full week later from Resurrection Sunday to the following Sunday. Eight days inclusive. Puts us right at today. But what stood out to me was the fact that as I read it this time, I noticed John chose to include the number. The Greek language has a word for a week, but John the poet chose to be specific and to say eight days. And that's just not a common unit of time in the Bible. As we read through this book, we see seven days repeated over and over again in the creation account, in the setting of Sabbath days and festivals as a symbol in various prophecies. We also see three days over and over again, 40 days and 40 nights, but not often eight Now, I think that John, the poet, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chose to say it eight days to make a connection, to show us something about who we are and what Jesus was doing. Now, I don't have time to dig into all the uses of eight days in the Bible, and it would probably put you to sleep if I did. But the most prominent one occurs around one of Israel's festivals, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's actually the only Jewish festival to cover eight days. This festival commemorated Israel's time in the wilderness when God had delivered them from Egypt. During the festival, the people of Israel built temporary shelters out of palm leaves and branches. These were the booths or tabernacles. They represented the tents that Israel lived in in the wilderness. They called to mind the tabernacle, the tent of meeting of God. Through various ceremonies, they remembered God's provision of water in the wilderness and his other miracles there. And then on the eighth day, Israel held a solemn day of rest, reflecting on how far God had brought them. I think when John says that this encounter with Thomas happened eight days later, he's asking those first disciples and and asking us to call that to mind. He's connecting us 
to Jesus' appearance at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, and all the way back to his poetic first chapter when he wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, what he wrote there was, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, or tabernacled among us. It's a thread running throughout John's gospel. But so what? Does that really mean anything for us today, 2,000 years later? I think it does, because I think John's connection here helps us to understand some key things about the disciples in John chapter 20, and it helps us to understand some things about ourselves. It helps us to remember that we all face doubt. It helps us to remember the reality of God's work. And it helps us to remember that God will meet us in the middle of our doubt. So let's take a look at these. One of the things that the Feast of Tabernacles should bring to mind for Israel and for us was the way that Israel was far from faithful in the wilderness. At every turn, the people grumbled and complained and seemed to forget the miraculous signs that God had given them again and again. Somehow, even after God brought all the plagues upon Egypt and parted the sea and provided water from the rock and appeared at Sinai and sent manna and quail, the Bible tells us the people still doubted him. We hear people say today, if, if God really wanted people to believe in him, he'd part the clouds and come down and show everybody that he's there. But the thing is, the Bible tells us that he did, and the people still doubted. Jesus healed the sick, fed the 5,000, raised the dead, and people still asked him for a sign. Jesus criticized the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, saying, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. And I'm so glad that the writers of the New Testament didn't shy away from the reality that their own generation, even many of Jesus' own disciples, scoffed and doubted and failed to understand this message that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. Now, we tend to be hard on Thomas here. We know him as doubting Thomas because of these verses. But his friends didn't call him that. They called him Didymus, the twin. I'm not sure he liked that any better. Thomas was the one before any of the other disciples who realized that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He said in John eleven sixteen, let us go also that we may die with him. Thomas, just like Peter, countered his doubt and his denial with conviction and inspired confession. I can relate to Didymus. Last week, our ministry staff here attended a one-day conference in Cleveland, and I wanted to be professional, kind of business casual, and appropriate for spring, so I wore what I'm wearing today. I thought it looked pretty good. And then I showed up at our church. <clears throat> Didymus. There's another reason that we shouldn't be too hard on Thomas. 
On that first Easter Sunday, the disciples were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders who had just sent Jesus to his death. Now, you'll remember, as we read just a moment ago, those locked doors didn't stop Jesus. He appeared in their midst, offering them proofs that he wasn't just a ghost or a vision, but he was risen indeed. I've often thought that on Easter we should eat leftover broiled fish because that's what he ate that night to prove that he was real. And Jesus sent the disciples out. But eight days later, where were they? They were still inside, still behind locked doors. Did they really have any greater faith than Thomas? They knew Jesus was risen, but where was the evidence in their lives? Just as John reminds us of Israel in the wilderness, he reminds us that we all, like Israel, like the disciples, deal with doubt. Some of us are like those other disciples. We say we believe in the resurrection, but we live our lives as though it never happened. After we finish singing the Easter anthems and the lilies have faded, we live our lives just like everyone else around us, reluctant to step out in faith as God calls us. And if we really stop to think about it, we find that the root of it all is that nagging doubt of whether it's all real. And pastors are not immune to that. Now, some of us are more like Thomas. We're more upfront with our doubts. 2,000-year-old reports of someone coming back to life just sound like a fairy tale. People who take it literally seem, not to mince words, like gullible fools. In fact, two years ago, the BBC conducted a poll of more than 2,000 people in the UK. As the British Telegraph reported, 23% of those calling themselves Christians said that they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead at all. That's among self-described Christians. One in four didn't believe what is arguably one of the central tenets of our faith. Now, that wasn't the most concerning part of that article for me. The Telegraph interviewed the Bishop of Manchester, and this is what he had to say. This important and welcome survey proves that many British people, despite not being regular churchgoers, hold core Christian beliefs. It finds surprisingly high levels of religious belief among those who follow no specific religion, often erroneously referred to as secularists or atheists. Now there's optimism, and then there's this guy. I may have made a career move from public relations to the ministry, but I think he has an option going the other way. No contrition, no wondering what have we done so wrong that so many Christians have abandoned core Christian beliefs. Instead, you know, this isn't as bad as I'd feared. I suppose it shouldn't be all that surprising. Ever since the fall and continuing through human history, our enemy has worked to foster skepticism or outright denial of the truth of God's word. And just like at the fall, he often cloaks it in a desire to be or to appear wise. One week ago on, on Easter Sunday, the New York Times ran an interview with Serene Jones, 
president of Union Theological Seminary. Now, I'll tell you up front, it's not on my short list for doctoral studies. But she had to say this about the resurrection. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. What's interesting to me, besides the fact that somehow she still considers herself to be a Christian, is how much that sounds like another theologian, Uncle Hub from the movie Secondhand Lions. Have any of you seen that? Just a few. I'd recommend it, despite what I'm about to say. If you've seen it, it, it tells the story about how a deadbeat mother lives her, leaves her son, Walter, with his bachelor uncles for a summer. Along the way, Walter discovers stories of adventure and heartbreak from their past, and they do wind up buying a used lion along the way. But at the climax of the movie, Walter asks Uncle Hub if the stories are true. And this is what happens. Those stories about Africa, about you, they're true, aren't they? Doesn't matter. It does, too. Around my mom, all I hear is lies. I don't know what to believe in. Damn, if you want to believe in something, then believe in it. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. The long speech I give to young man sounds like you need to hear a piece of it. It's a piece. Sometimes, the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most. The people are basically good. That honor, courage, and virtue mean everything. That power and money, money and power mean nothing. That good always triumphs over evil. And I want you to remember this, that love True love never dies. You remember that boy. You remember that. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, you see. Man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. Got that? Sounds an awful lot to me like Hub had a future as a seminary president. But while these sort of statements might sound nice on the surface, there's a big problem here. Walter was right. It matters whether it's true or not. Dig down far enough in Uncle Hub's argument or in Dr. Jones's, and you hit air. If the things we need to believe in the most aren't really true, 
why are we believing in them again? There's no foundation. If the empty tomb is just a symbol, how can Dr. Jones really claim that love is stronger than life or death? That's just wishful thinking with a veneer of Hollywood philosophy. The Apostle Paul addressed this very problem when writing to the church in Corinth. He said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There are some who see Jesus' blessing in John 20, verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And they say that Christianity is an anti-intellectual religion, that it demands that we just stop thinking critically and just believe. And that misses the point entirely. John reminds us that in the wilderness of our doubt, we have more than enough evidence that God's work is real. John goes on to write, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God doesn't ask us to check our brains at the door. He invites us to consider the evidence. So let's consider this. The writings that tell us about Jesus are the most well-attested works of ancient literature in the world. We have more than 5,000 ancient copies of the Bible today, with the oldest existing copies of New Testament books dating to the 2nd century A.D. In contrast, most ancient histories are considered authentic and reliable with only a handful of copies from hundreds of years after the originals. The oldest scraps of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey date to 1,500 years after his own time. Even the works of Shakespeare, which appeared after the invention of the printing press, are much more inconsistent than the Gospels. Consider that those writings portray these same apostles as rather foolish. They fail again and again to understand Jesus. They even deny him. That's not what you would expect people who are seeking to gain power or promote their own agenda to start spreading and make up about themselves. Consider that these same apostles, by all accounts, maintained the reality of Jesus' resurrection and his divinity in the face of torture and execution. You might find a few people willing to stand by a lie for the sake of violence or wealth or power, but that wasn't the case for these apostles. To be a follower of Jesus at that time, not to mention a leader in the early church, was a death sentence. Not because they said love was more powerful than death. Sorry, Dr. Jones. That wouldn't have offended the Jewish authorities. That wouldn't have caused any conflict with the pagan religions throughout the empire. That wouldn't have caused any problems with Rome and worship of the emperor. No, they were condemned to death because they believed that Jesus Christ was the living God, 
that he was crucified to bear their sins and rose from the dead to proclaim that we can have life in his name. That is what flew in the face of Caesar. And to find such a large number of people who consistently stood by this conviction, not a philosophy, not a metaphor, but the reality of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, who stood by this truth to promote peace, to give selfless service to the outcasts of society, who stood by this conviction to their own poverty and to their own deaths, that can only mean that they were standing by someone they knew and had seen and were willing to die for because they had a living hope beyond the grave. Friends, believing in Jesus' resurrection and the truth of the gospel is not intellectual infancy. And let's not patronize those who have died for their faith in Jesus by suggesting they only died for a symbol. But no matter how much evidence we have, no matter how many signs we've been given, if we're honest, it would never really be enough. Last Sunday, we had an Easter egg hunt for our kids. Now, I love our son Wilson to death, but sometimes he gets a bit of an attitude. Last week, for whatever reason, he went through the house and began looking directly at the plastic Easter eggs and claiming he didn't see them at all. And then he got grumpy when we pointed this out to him. Now, I can't get too upset with him. Every now and again, I might convince myself that that noise that I heard wasn't my wife needing help with something upstairs. So I just keep reading until she comes and stands right in front of me. It's actually much safer to admit this standing up here. But no matter how much evidence is in front of us, it wouldn't be enough. Because if we're honest, we would still refuse to see. As the Scottish pastor and scholar Alexander McLaren wrote more than a century ago, the object of the Christian's faith is not a proposition. It's not a dogma or truth, but a person. And the act of faith is not an acceptance of a given fact, a resurrection or any other as true, but it is a reaching out of the whole nature to him and a resting upon him. There may be belief in the truth of the gospel, and not a spark of faith in the Christ revealed by the gospel. Israel's problem in the wilderness wasn't that they didn't have evidence. It was that again and again they turned away from God's own presence in their midst. They refused to see him. But I praise God that Jesus did not leave Thomas just to consider the other disciples' facts and assess their truth. He showed up. In the middle of their doubt and their fear, he appeared in that upper room. And we're told that he kept appearing over 40 days to more than 500 people. And he will meet us in our doubt if we'll only reach out to him. Earlier in his gospel, John tells us about something that happened on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He writes, On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what happened on that resurrection Sunday? The glorified Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into the disciples. John remembered the promise, and he invites us to remember that too. What about Thomas? He wasn't there. But despite his doubt, he also received the Holy Spirit eight days later. How do I know? Well, Paul tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And what does Thomas say to the risen Christ? My Lord and my God. Out of his heart flowed rivers of living water. You and I can have that too. Paul in Colossians tells us about Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because when Jesus shows up, He gives us peace in the midst of our doubt. Three times in John 20, Jesus proclaims peace to his disciples. Now, this was the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom. And that goes far beyond just a lack of conflict or fear. It's wellness and wholeness and life. And that true shalom is not possible through stubborn doubt. It's not possible through wishful thinking and Hollywood philosophy. It's only possible through Jesus' cross and his resurrection. Eight days later, where are you? Are you like Thomas, still refusing to consider the evidence? Are you like the other disciples, reluctant to follow where Jesus leads? John reminds us that we all, like Israel in the wilderness, struggle with our doubts. But he also reminds us that God's work is real. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And most importantly, Jesus doesn't just leave us to consider facts or propositions, no matter how important and true they may be. He shows up. And he gives us the peace of his presence. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that we can be reminded that we are not alone in our doubt. That we can be reminded, we can remind one another that our hope, that our belief in your work is real. God, I thank you that you don't leave us alone in our doubt, but that when we reach out to you, you show up. Thank you for showing up today. 
pray that you would help us to remember the reality of your presence with us. For those who might still be sitting in their doubt this morning, I pray that you would work in them, chip that away, show up in their lives today, Lord. In Jesus' name.